battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you have written all that you have in your word for our instruction. That we would be taught, edified, corrected. Lord, you know what we need. And this passage is here, Lord, to again just lead us to dependency upon you. And that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives. And we pray, God, that your good and perfect will in each of us would be accomplished as we submit ourselves to you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, um, in our study of First and Second Samuel, we are now at chapter 11, which has been called the chapter that would strike the greatest fear in the heart of the reader. And I believe that is the case. As I look over Scripture and, and think about all that God has to say to us and the different examples that, that He um, has for us through the lives of men and women, there is certainly no passage that strikes greater fear in my heart than this passage here. David has been living an exemplary life in almost every aspect. He has now been on the throne for 20 years. God has given him great victory. When he purposed to build a temple, a house for God, God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. And we have back in chapter 7, God's covenant with David, which humbled him. And David goes, who am I that you would say such great things about your servant and that you would promise things that extend well beyond me? So humbled. We saw in chapter Nine, that David remembered his covenant with Jonathan, his friend, and inquired, is there yet anybody left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And so not only was he humbled by God's faithfulness to him, that was an encouragement to David to be faithful to others as God was to him. And David sought out Mephibosheth and graced him and blessed him beyond anything he could have ever imagined, Mephibosheth. David's a good man, a man after God's own heart. And then it seems out of nowhere, we come to chapter 11, and David is taking another man's wife, committing adultery, and then by the end of the chapter, killing that man so that he can cover up his sin. It is the low point of David's life. So there are a lot of things here for us to look at, and... Um, and I want to break this down, this chapter, 
into a few parts. First, the context or circumstances of this sin, the checks that God gives, um, the, the cracks, I missed one part, the cracks that, were cert- that cracked the foundation of David's life that set him up for this, the checks that God gives, <clears throat> the consequences and cover-up, some challenges or lessons to us, and then finally, <clears throat> um, changing course so that we don't repeat David's mistakes. It says that it came about in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle. David stayed home. As I said, David has been 20 years on the throne, and he is at this time in his life about 50 years old, and he's been seeing great success. Every battle, without exception, ended in success. And at 50 years old and things are going well, he thought, I really don't need to fight this battle. In fact, it was more than a battle, it was a siege. And we know from the rest of the story that this siege lasted over a year. And David probably was thinking, really? Do I really need to sleep in a tent for a year? I'm the king and I've got a pretty good palace. And they've got everything in control. Nothing's going to happen for a long time. The way sieges work, you just circled around the city and you stayed there, you camped there, and basically you starved the people out that were on the inside. Could last a long time. And David goes, I'm not really needed. And so he went home. Didn't stay with his troops. When I think of 50 now, I think, that's not very old. Because it is in the rearview mirror. But I remember a dear friend of mine, a man I really respected and looked up to, who at 50, he committed adultery. And I was probably 30 at the time. And I thought, how can a man that old (laughs) be guilty of that? He was a leading elder in one of the um, biggest churches in San Antonio. Some of you here would know him. And he, to his credit, after he sinned, he stood up in front of that whole congregation and confessed his sin and asked for forgiveness. He stepped down as an elder, never taught another Sunday school class, used to come up to his hill and teach, never came up again. And he, he said, I have disqualified myself. And he was greatly humbled. But he was not too old at 50 years old, and had been walking with God for a long time. A couple years ago, Patsy and I heard about another man that we know, we don't know him well. He's been in ministry for 50 years, and I think it was 72 years old. He just seemed to lose his mind and ran off with a 22-year-old girl. It's destroyed his family, his reputation, his ministry, They'll never be the same. The point is, is that we are never too young or too old to fall victim to this sin. None of us are immune. None of us. It happened in a time of great success, a time of ease, when David wasn't really facing any more big problems. This was not a Goliath. This was not a Saul. Those men were gone. They were, in the, they were in the rearview mirror. Chuck Swindoll, I've been reading his commentary as well as a number of other people's thoughts on this passage, and, and he points out that it's in the trials 
that God creates dependent people. And when the trials are gone, we are very prone not to depend and to become self-indulgent, to give ourselves freedoms that God wouldn't want for us and that we wouldn't take if there were big trials in life and successes. I had to laugh this morning with one of the men in the church. He came up to me a little bit ago and said, boy, I was at Flagstaff um, Cafe and overheard a couple of people talking about you and really singing your praises. And I said, well, God knows the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And then he laughed, and just a minute ago he came over to me and said, um, you know, I got to thinking about it, and that probably was another Charlie they were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And I appreciate that. Scripture says that man is tested by the praise that comes to him. There are greater dangers in life than trials. Not having them is a greater danger. So David sent the men into battle, and he went to bed, literally. It says in verse 2, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. So that was a long nap. He's been sleeping, apparently all afternoon. He's in the wrong place. He's indulging himself. He's become lazy and complacent and indifferent and arrogant. We have to remember that no person sins greatly suddenly. It just doesn't happen that way. People don't typically take flying leaps off of cliffs. They just walk close enough to the edge that one day they step off. And David, for all his seeking after God and purity of heart and and exalting God, As we've seen, there's one area that was unyielded, and it was a relationship with women. God said in Deuteronomy 17 that when a man becomes king, he is not to multiply gold and silver. David was obedient to that. When they conquered a city and it was full of wealth, David dedicated it to the Lord. It also said that king was not to multiply horses. Apparently, David was obedient to that. When he conquered another people and they had many horses, he hamstrung them. And so he couldn't use them to pull chariots, and nobody else could either. David said, we're not going to go down that path. God said, don't multiply horses. But God also said in those same verses, the king is not to multiply wives. And so he was disobedient, and he multiplied many wives. Eight wives and at least ten concubines that David had. That's 17 too many. He was disobedient. And that begins to form the crack that leads to this. This was just, sadly enough, one more woman that David was taking. He's never taken a woman like this 
under these circumstances. But it is just a small step, a small justification from what he's been doing for many years. He arose from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. These houses all had flat roofs. And the bedroom was many times up on the roof. And so David probably just stepped out of his bedroom. And there would have been a patio area. And he walks around the patio and it's evening. His home would have been higher than all the other homes. And so it would have been very easy for him to look from his house around the city. And his eyes fell upon a woman that was bathing. And his eyes lingered. He didn't look away. He kept looking. He noted that she was very beautiful in appearance. And so David sent some servants and inquired, who is this woman? Now his lust is becoming known. The servants of the house would have known that David is staring at this woman. Commentators are, are, are divided on whether she was fully clothed or fully naked. Some would say giving her all the benefit of the doubt, saying she was not being indiscreet. Um, that she would have been very modest and that she could have been bathing her feet, bathing herself in such a way that he would have only noticed her beauty, her beauty and, and yet she was still clothed. Others say, they go so far as to say that she knew she was being looked at and she was enticing him. I kind of think the truth is probably in the middle. She was, it would appear, being immodest. Whether she knew she was being looked at or not, it would seem the chances would be pretty high that someone would have observed her. Most of the men are gone from, the, from Jerusalem because they're out to battle. Maybe she thought the chances are more unlikely of being seen because most of the cities male population has been vacated. But still, David saw. And he didn't look away. And he had his servants go find out who she was. And they came back with this short cryptic description. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Now normally it would stop because a woman was known by her parents and not typically described according to her husband. But this description didn't stop. And the servant added, the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so you, it makes you wonder, was this servant trying to gently and yet clearly tell David, don't do this. This is not simply another woman. This is a married woman. It was a check which God always gives. There is no sin that we ever enter into that the Spirit of God does not provide clear checks every time. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there is no temptation that has overtaken us except that it is common to man and that God has provided the way of escape. 
But David didn't mind the check. And we're told in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. He sent and inquired. He sent and took. And she came to him, and he lay with her. This still seems to be such a big leap from anything he's done before. But yet, I don't think so. You recall that his first wife, Michael, when David fled from Saul, Saul took her and gave her to another man. And when the nation of Israel wanted David to become king, he said, I will under one condition. You get Michael and bring her back. At that point, she was no longer David's wife. She was another man's wife. But David seemed to justify it by saying she was mine first. And he took her. And he had no right. So you can see this is a long way from looking at a at a young widow, as he did with Nabal's wife, Abigail, and marrying her because he liked what he saw. And then taking another man's wife under the justification she was his first, and now simply taking another man's wife. There is a steady progression here. It would seem, perhaps, though the text doesn't say it, that there were no prior children for Bathsheba. We don't know how long she'd been married to Uriah, but there is no mention of any other child. Maybe David knew that. This is a married woman with no children. Maybe she's barren and cannot conceive. Maybe I can have sex with this woman and no one will ever know because there will never be a baby. Safe sex. There is no such thing. Numbers 32.23 says... Be sure your sin will find you out. And he thought he was safe. Far from it. So panic. Man, can you imagine? David opens up that note. She didn't even need to sign her name. Just those words, I am pregnant. And he knew exactly who gave the note. And he panicked. So he sets up a scenario, tries to begin to manipulate the situation, begins to operate in total hypocrisy, calls Uriah from the battlefield under the pretext of wanting to know how the battle is going, and then sends Uriah home. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. David knew this man. He had distinguished himself as a man of integrity, a valiant warrior, and I believe all the mighty men were men of faith. Truly a good man. And so when David took this man's wife, this was not a stranger's wife. This was a man who knew well and had dedicated his life to defending David. Made the sin all the more terrible. Verse 6, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. 
And after Uriah gave the message of how the battle was going, David told him, go home to your wife. But verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to this house, David said to Uriah, How, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He knew what David wanted him to do. Maybe he already knows that David has slept with his wife. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. When David first fled from Saul, you remember he went to the priest Ahimelech and asked for some bread. And the priest said, all I've got is consecrated bread. And I cannot give it to you and your men unless you have kept yourself clean from women. And David answered and said, of course we have. Are we not on the king's, in the king's service? Am I not on the king's errand? Of course we've kept ourselves from women. And now David is wanting this man to do, to not keep himself from his wife, what David was unwilling to do. And thought, Why? I'm, on the, I'm on the king's errand. I'm, in, I'm fighting the king's battle. How can I indulge myself? David has moved so far away. When he was that young man fleeing from Saul, he said, of course, if I'm in the king's business, I would keep myself pure. But now saying to Uriah that he wants him to do what David would have never done in the same circumstances. So David said, okay, stay another night here. So he stayed another night and David spent the evening with him, getting him drunk. And then sent him home. But Uriah went and slept in the gate of the palace with the king's servants, who, by the way, all knew what David had done. It makes you wonder if they had whispered to Uriah. While you've been out in the battle, your king has been with your wife. And so the next morning when David heard that Uriah had once again refused to go home, a drunk man showing more character and more dignity than the king of Israel. What an indictment on David. That a man in his drunkenness is, has a clearer mind than the king in his desire and in his lust. So David sent Uriah back with a message to Joab, saying, put the man at the front of the battle, withdraw from him so that he dies. Joab was many things, but he wasn't stupid. And he would have known Uriah very well. And chances are he would have known Uriah's wife and known that she was a beautiful woman. And he knew David. And he could put two and two together. And I think it is very likely Joab knew exactly what has happened back at the palace. But there's no way that Joab can play this out the way that David wants it without even greater suspicion being brought on David. 
And so he can't just put Uriah at the front of the battle, pull away, and he's the one guy there. Everybody would have known the guy has been set up for murder. So Joab has Uriah at the front, and he has a lot of men. We aren't told how many, but several who stayed with Uriah, and all the others pulled away. So it wasn't just one man who lost his life, but several innocent men. Think about those families whose husbands don't come home, fathers don't come home, because of a king who's trying to cover his sin. That sin and the consequences are spreading to more and more people. And then finally, Joab sends a message back saying, we've lost some men, and Uriah was among them. And the way that the messenger delivers the message is not the way that David had instructed, I'm sorry, that Joab had instructed. Joab said, if he's upset with you when you tell him that men have been lost, you say, well, Uriah was one of them. And again, these were not dumb people. And it would seem that the, that the messenger also figured out these men were killed so that Uriah would die. Because the messenger doesn't wait for David to say, why did Joab let this happen? The messenger anticipates it and says, and by the way, Uriah was one of those who died. David's sin is far from secret. So then we come to the end of the chapter in verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. On one level, it looks like David has gotten away with it. There would always be those people who would wonder, and there were those people who knew. But we see people in power all the time, they hold the levers, and they can pull those levers so that the greater population believes what they want them to believe. And David maybe could massage this thing, manipulate it, so that the message that goes out is, wow, what a great guy David is. One of his mighty men dies in battle, leaves a poor widow who's pregnant, and David takes her and cares for her and raises that child as his own. What a great king we have. And God says it was evil in his sight. One of the things that we don't know for sure that's, that's noted and highlighted in this passage is that phrase back in verse 4, when she had purified herself from her uncleanness. She returned to her house. I remember studying this in, in seminary, and, and I wrote it in a margin here in my Bible that that phrase, um, when she had purified, purified herself, is not a consecutive phrase. It probably, in other words, didn't happen that she purified herself after she had been with David. It's more likely that what was happening is that she was, the bath that she was taking was a ceremonial cleansing bath that women were to take after their time of month. And when David looked at her, she was observing the law of Moses. And David saw, in other words, not a woman who was simply flaunting herself. Maybe she was indiscreet. 
probably so, probably immodest, but she was carrying out a ritual act as prescribed in the law. It would have been another check on David. This woman is not a pagan woman. This is a believing woman, a good woman, who is seeking to live according to the law of God. We don't know what kind of, how she felt, whether she felt she had no option but to submit to the power of the king. He clearly was abusing his power. But we do know the Bible does not put the blame on her. I believe that, as with Adam and Eve, there was blame on both parts, but God puts most of the blame, if not all of it, on Adam. And I believe there was blame on both parts here, but God wants us to focus on David. And the point is, good people. He was a good man, and she was a good woman, can fall to this. So I just want to make some final challenges and observations. First of all, clearly walking with God does not build up immunity against sin. Just because we've been faithful to our vows for 20, 30 years doesn't mean we will always be. We cannot rest on past faithfulness. Our dependency is in Jesus Christ alone. And that will never change. We need to hand ourselves over to him every day and throughout every day. Giving in to desire and sexual passion will never satisfy it. That is one of the lies from the devil. Well, if I just look, then it's over. No. It's been described that that sexual passion and this kind of desire is not a hunger that can be fed like the stomach needs food and then it's satisfied. This is the hunger of a fire that no matter how much fuel you put in that fire, it wants more. You're just stoking the fire by giving in to sexual passion. We've noted no one falls into great sin suddenly. James speaks to this, and in his concise way, he says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We see this progression with David. David saw. That's not sin. Shouldn't have been at home. He should have been on the battlefield, not in the bedroom. But it was not sin to look and see a woman who was disrobed. The sin was lingering and continuing to look and letting that look move from temptation to lust. 
There's a difference between temptation and sin. They are not the same. We cannot lose sight of the fact, both men and women cannot lose sight of the fact that men are aroused by sight. Job said, I've made a a covenant with my eyes not to look on a maiden. We need to guard what we look at. And the solution to lust is not to fight. There is nothing in Scripture that says fight lust. It says flee. There's nothing in Scripture that says pray about lust. We're not told to fight it. We're not told to pray about it. We're told to flee. As Chuck Swindoll says, if you don't flee, you will fall. After David saw, David sent. And so now the lust is conceived. And then David took. So now the lust has given birth to sin. And then David murdered. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Every New Testament truth has an Old Testament illustration. And I can't think of a better one for illustrating that New Testament truth than 2 Samuel chapter 11. Another point is that sexual sin always drags you into other sins. David's sin with Bathsheba didn't stop with adultery. Sexual sin hurts others. No sin is private. It's part of the lie of the devil. And sexual sin is evil in the sight of God. We don't call it that anymore. We elevate it. We encourage it. It's... Interesting, people have noted it, that God spent only four verses talking about David's sin with Bathsheba. If they'd made a movie about it, 90-minute movie, that would have been 60 minutes of the movie. God says, we're not going to dwell there. We're not going to linger over that. It is ugly. It is evil. I'll record it because I don't want everybody else to go down that road either. But we're not going to embellish it. How do you change course? And this is not a passage of scripture for somebody who's already gone down this path. This would be for those who have not gone down this path, but might be starting on it. If you've been up to his hill recently, you know our bridge is out. And um, I don't know any other state in the nation that loves signs like Texas does. And there must be, I don't know how many signs along the way saying detour, road closed, no through traffic, this road is closed. And, it was all, and so and every Saturday morning, we're outside our houses, you know, doing lawn work and stuff, and we see car after car after car blowing by every one of those signs. Motorcycles, everybody going by. And then we see them come back after a while. <laughs> So we've thought about it, his hill, putting a sign up facing the other direction saying, we told you so. (laughs) This is a passage 
where we're supposed to get the message here. There are so many signs along the way. We are not the exception. We are not different than David. If David could fall in this way, any of us could. So some questions. Are you unaccountable in any area of your life? See, David was unaccountable. He reached this pinnacle of success where people didn't dare to challenge him. He had too much privacy. I can remember when I was in seminary and I had a job of, um, on nights, on the weekends, of, of installing modular office equipments in law firms in the big high-rise buildings of downtown Dallas. And we would go in, and this would be a new building, and just nothing up there, but as a, you can tell, it's going to be a very, very large law firm. And the entire floor space was just open. And we would set up hundreds of cubicles for all the peons. And they had no privacy. But around the outside walls, there's where all the partners have their offices. And they had lots of privacy. And they've got big oak doors and mahogany desks. And you didn't even knock on those doors unless somebody invited you to. With greater power and greater success comes greater privacy and greater temptation. Less accountability. Are there hidden areas? It should be a practice to be able to, be go, to go home at night and be able to talk to your spouse and tell them everything that happened that day. Can you do that? Every conversation, every encounter, or is there something hidden? Are you yielding to the flesh, indulging yourself in any area? Are you toying with what God forbids? Are you straying toward another person in your thoughts? Are you still delighting yourself, as Proverbs says, in the wife of your youth? The course correction, as I've already noted, is as simple as run, flee. Don't fight, don't pray, run. Paul says to the Corinthians, I buffet my body, lest after having preached to others that I myself should be disqualified. I do not box as though boxing the air, shadow boxing. We must believe the truth. It is an inescapable principle. Lust leads to sin, and sin gives birth to death. There's no exception. We must surrender every aspect of our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ. Recently, a young couple 
had a big challenge in their relationship. He gave in to lust. He was so convicted. And he told his girlfriend what he had done. Begged her forgiveness. And she very wisely said to him, Do not destroy what God has given us. I forgive you, but don't destroy what God has given us. Very few people in the Bible were given more than David was given. And for the sake of lust, he destroyed it. The rest of 2 Samuel is a sad, sad story. I'd rather not even teach it. It's painful to teach through the rest of his life and see the sorrows that were compounded. It didn't begin with Bathsheba. We need to make that clear. It began with an area of his life that was unsurrendered to God, where he was simply saying, I can and I will. Saying no to God and yes to his desire. That's where it began. Bathsheba was the culmination of 20 years of saying no to God. We will reap what we sow. God is not mocked. Next week, we'll look at how all this plays out and the confrontation, the confession. And by the grace of God, his cleansing. I'll close this in prayer.